This episode is powered by Safety FM. The Crucial Talks Podcast with your host, Mike Sadam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crucial Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sadam. If you could do me a quick favor, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast and subscribe to it. That really helps us a lot, and we're trying to grow this community of people. And if any of your friends, if you think they would like to listen also, please share the podcast with them and let them know that it exists. Also, if you have any questions for me, you can always feel free to reach out to me by visiting www.crucialtalks.com or through LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. So there are a couple of core tenets at the center of the Crucial Talks podcast. Now, one of those is the power of groups and how belonging to groups lets us make sense of the world around us, which means it also affects all of our decision-making. Now, the other tenet builds on the belief that people are social animals. The biggest difference between us and any other social animal on the planet, though, is that we can create reality with each other, and we do this through storytelling. Now, I think today is going to be a pretty interesting episode because lately you've heard me talking to a lot of authors and business people and stuff like that. But today we get to talk to a good friend of mine, and he's a fellow Naval Postgraduate School alumni. His name's Chris Milburn, and he has become an expert in storytelling and group belonging and social identity and all these things we kind of talk about here on the podcast. But I think it's going to be super interesting because how he comes at it is really from a place of like counterterrorism studies. However, he's been able to figure out how it applies to people really all over the world. So without further ado, let's welcome Chris Melbourne to the Crucial Talks podcast. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. Well, I think it's going to be fun to have you on. I mean, I know normally we're talking about stuff as friends and kicking back, that sort of thing. So I think it's going to be good to get some of that knowledge that's kind of buried in your head out into the world because it's really, I know that all the conversations we've had, it's really valuable stuff. So before we get into that, how did you get to where you are? I mean, there's so much about your background. You have a, a degree in communication before your master's in security studies for NPS. You had your undergrad in communications. You worked as a PIO for public information stuff. Uh, you're a musician. I mean, you've done all of this kind of cool stuff, worked in emergency services. So how did all that kind of lead you to here where you have all this knowledge about storytelling and group belonging and group behavior that I think is really valuable for the world to hear? How'd you get here? Uh, okay, well, um, it, uh, all of my background sort of led up to uh, where I was at NPS, um, and I found myself uh, looking for research topics, and uh, as I learned uh, about some of the tenets of group behavior and how people interact socially. Um, I was finding these connections with my communications background. Uh, like you mentioned, I was a public information officer for a while. Uh, I do have a degree in communications. Uh, I'm a musician. Um, I've become very familiar with how people uh, tell stories and how uh, cultures are built. Um, and as I was studying what we would consider terrorist groups, uh, it occurred to me that I was seeing all of the same, uh, the same social structures uh, that we see in everyday life uh, in these terrorist groups. And uh, specifically, 
what I realized was uh, that terrorist groups are uh, just like any other small or large group. Uh, they have very specific ideas about the world, about their place in the world, about who their group is, and uh, what their relationship is to other groups. Um, and I started to look into uh, how other groups, agencies, organizations, businesses uh, develop their own cultures using tangibles and intangibles uh, and relating those back to terrorist groups uh, with the intent of figuring out how a terrorist group grows and functions. Um, so it all sort of coalesced together in my thesis, and uh, I've been able to take what I uh, what I developed there and uh, work on some some terrorism projects and some other uh, social projects uh, in as far as analyzing groups and how groups behave. Well, that's what I find really interesting because we kind of came down this path together, where we're in this position now, where we're kind of using what we learned in counterterrorism in a positive way, right? Like we're trying to apply this stuff so that people are able to not only learn about counterterrorism, but also apply it to other things that are more, more positive, right? Because I know we've had a conversation before that these things that drive groups, if we really go down to the core of it, it's all about how the groups interact, how they see other groups, how they see themselves, how you bring people into the group, how you develop this strong bond to people that now identify with the group. And as we were talking in the past, we've talked about the fact that all of this stuff could actually help people that are in sales or marketing or communities, or even if you look at politicians today, how they're interacting, all of this stuff really comes down to the core of groups and group belonging. So as we kind of move forward in this conversation, what are we talking about when we're talking about groups and what does that actually mean? I mean, what is a group? I and mean, we kind of understand it because we know it when we see it, but when we're trying to analyze things, what does a, what does a group have? I mean, what does a terrorist organization share with, oh, I don't know, say uh, Democrats or Republicans or, you know, your local church? What do those groups have in common? What makes them a group? Okay, um, well, a, a group tends to be um, a collection of people who are individuals, uh, but they view themselves as having some specific similarities uh, and having a specific direction forward. Um, so a group can be uh, co-workers at work, um, and your direction forward in, in your job is uh, whatever you're employed to do. and if the group views itself as uh, being cohesive and if the members uh, strongly relate to each other, um, then that group identity uh, becomes more salient. It becomes more a part of who those people are and they invest themselves more in that group. This relates to, uh, say, religious groups in that they uh, subscribe to or ascribe to an ideology. So uh, they have a, a view of the world, they have a story about what the world is all about and what their position in the world is. Um, and this story helps drive the group forward to uh, continue coming together, uh, continue performing whatever the group's particular functions are 
Uh, and so it plays itself out in a lot of ways. And specifically, uh, my background, uh, I began to research how groups use uh, cultural items like music, stories, uh, dress, um, and rituals uh, to symbolically create the universe around them. And this idea of a group existing in a symbolic universe uh, is, is a pretty uh, well-known idea with some sociologists. Um, and I decided to, to dig into that and figure out in detail kind of how groups use those things. Well, and so let's bring it down to a level some people can understand here, because we're talking about groups like our coworkers can bring a group, terrorist organizations or groups, people that, that identify with a church as a group or a religion as a group. And we're talking about this thing that is a, a group. And then you brought up the fact that as a group becomes more salient, which means as that role, as that identity becomes more important to them, they start behaving more in line with that that group with that role. So to kind of, I guess to kind of bring it down to something everybody might be able to understand, when the next iPhone X whatever comes out, how salient is identifying as a Mac user or Apple user for the people that are those early adopters standing in line? Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about groups? Like these people are identifying as Apple users and some are identifying strongly as Apple users. So are those the ones lining up first at the door the night before they open to get the new phone? Uh, yeah, that can certainly uh, be applied there to uh, something like uh, viewing yourself as a uh, technology buff. Uh, if you have, um, if you have those things that you're interested in that you feel like you are a part of a culture like you relate to other people who share the same interests as you do and you have the same set of values, uh, that can certainly uh, provide a type of a group identity. Um, however, I would say the, the more significant group identities are the ones um, that, that particularly drive behavior on behalf of the group. That's kind of where my research took me. Um, is those ideologically motivated groups uh, that motivate an individual to act in the group's best interest um, and to move the group's agenda forward in that way. So there are definitely a lot of those principles that apply. I think that in general, the, in driving group behavior and culture, um, you want to typically tend to line up the individual's values with the group that they're in, and then they're going to be the most uh, likely to act on behalf of the group. And when we're talking about that, I mean, we've talked about things on this podcast before, like having shared identities or having a superordinate goal with respect to people at work. So if you have a strong group identity and that group has a mission that it's trying to accomplish. It doesn't matter if you're the janitor or the CEO, the actions you take are on behalf of the group. That kind of sounds like the same thing that you're talking about and what you kind of specialized in is these people that actually take action for the group. Uh, yeah, that's correct. And uh, I specifically studied uh, the United States military's special operations community, for instance. Um, they are a good example of 
a group that has a very tightly developed culture and a very specific set of identities uh, that motivate individuals to act in a way that gets them into the group so they can attain that specific identity. Uh, and when a person invests that much of themselves into becoming a member of a specific group like that, where the identity is so important to those individuals, then that individual is going to be more motivated to act on behalf of the group as well. Um, and a lot of what I looked into is how uh, the way people appear uh, and the stories that they tell about the group and about the individuals uh, keep driving that behavior in a forward motion. Well, and so it sounds like groups are really super important to how people make sense of the world around them. And the stronger that identity with that group is, the more salient it is, the more that affects their behavior, their decision-making. And it kind of it just drives everything they do. But to get somebody to that point, you alluded to stories and you alluded to the power of stories and how stories actually impact group belonging and those emotions and feelings people have of belonging to that particular group. So really, who uses stories and, and why are stories so important to us? Okay, yeah, those are great questions. Um, the uh, stories are all around us, whether we can readily identify them or not. Um, in our current American culture, we tend to view all those vessels of storytelling as entertainment. However, those, those forms of entertainment like movies, music, television, uh, probably the, the, those are the most widely used ones at the moment. Uh, all of those mass media devices um, are all historically uh, art forms that have been used to convey important messages about how we are expected to interact with each other and what the world around us looks like according to other people. So religions are especially good at this because of their use of ritual and music uh, and in the ways that religions develop stories and perpetuate their own stories, all of these things become sort of implicit in the worldview, meaning uh, as you go to attend a worship service in, in church, you participate in songs that say things about the world, and you expose yourself to those over and over again. You align yourselves with those ideas. Um, and as you feel in alignment with what that group's stories are, it helps the individual make sense of the world around them. Uh, and this definitely can be used uh, to an advantage in a positive way in moving positive group behavior forward. And it can also be used in a negative way. The group can influence people to do things uh, in a negative way as well, and that's where our uh, terrorism studies came into play. So in the terrorist groups, like if they're taking an action on, on behalf of that group, we may see it as a negative, but how do they see it based on these stories they hear, based on how important that identity is? How does the terrorist see what they're doing? Uh, that's uh, absolutely a, a good perspective. Um, the somebody that we would call a terrorist is somebody who is acting 
on behalf of their group uh, to advance the group's position and to communicate a statement to both the group members and people outside the group. And that statement typically um, is a challenge directed at uh, some kind of grievance or declaration of who that group is and what their priorities are. Uh, so um, violence typically is, is one of the ways that extremism is played out. Uh, and obviously, violence can be extremely negative. And so for those outside the group, uh, they would then say that those are terrorists, those are enemies. But for those inside the group, that person or those people become martyrs. They become saints. They're the ones who are uh, carrying out the actions that benefit the group. So that, I would say, is a matter of perspective. And so that's why we see maybe stories about our military. Because I know when I went to school, when we the stories we heard was pretty heroic people uh, dying, saving others, people taking actions in wartime, that sort of thing. And they were, they were heroes to us. And they, they were a way to prototype the behaviors that we were expected to exhibit later on. Like these people that did these things tended to be who we looked up to, to gauge what our actions would be. And it kind of seems like the same thing. Like people, two people standing next to each other watching the same thing unfold can take it in completely different ways based on how they're actually seeing that action where we may see our military as being very heroic because of what they're doing. Somebody else could see it in a totally opposite way, just like how we view terrorists and they view themselves. So knowing this power, knowing that stories affect a group, how does a story actually, I mean, it, it's powerful, right? Because these people aren't being poked and prodded to do these things. They're choosing to do them. So how does a story being so powerful, I mean, it's words and it's pictures and it's song and it's these things that are really, like you said, they're kind of intangible. So how does a story become that powerful? How does it affect a group in such a way that people will take these actions that on paper rationally may not make sense, but to them, it makes complete sense. How does that actually happen? Uh, well, when a, I would say when a story specifically aligns with uh, people's vision of who they think they are and what they think the world is about, um, there's, there's less friction for that person to act on behalf of the group. So uh, most people tend to think they view the world in the correct way, regardless of what their background is, what culture or society they are a part of, uh, what political affiliation, religious affiliation. Most people uh, believe that they view the world in the correct way. And the stories that resonate with those individuals are the ones that make the most sense to them. Uh, and when you get that alignment of the person's predisposition to believing that the world is a certain way and it aligns with other people saying the world is this way and they have a structure for viewing the world, um, then people become much more motivated to act and to perpetuate that group's uh, priorities. 
Okay, well, and now I know that there are probably a lot of people listening to this that aren't counterterrorism people, that aren't in the military, although there are some. Um, they may not be in public service. They may not be in government, but they're business owners. They're leaders. They're community members. They are people that are trying to start their own business. How are these stories being used today? Like what kind of stories are we seeing today that maybe they can use to further their business or improve the leadership in their organization or retain employees or recruit employees? I mean, what kind of stories and what kind of ways are we seeing this happen in today's world that we might be able to use or that they might be able to use in, in their worlds, in what they're trying to accomplish? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, and, uh, there are many ways that this can, that this can take shape. Um, and it's going to be probably quite a bit different for everybody, but this is where, uh, the study of archetypes is probably valuable in that regardless of the specifics of stories, we're all familiar with certain archetypes. Uh, for instance, the hero's journey is a is a popular way of viewing stories, and it has uh, many many different ways that it has played out over the over the uh, centuries. This idea of a uh, an unassuming person who is uh, challenged into seeing the world in a different way and has to go through uh, certain challenges and grows because of it. Um, and in, in doing so is able to make big changes and, uh, you know, the popular way of looking at it is, uh, defeating evil in some way. Uh, this idea that, uh, taking this particular journey, whatever the journey is, whether it is, uh, employment at a place or a, a new religion, um, new spiritual ideas, this idea that joining in this group and moving in that direction is going to be a journey that offers uh, fulfillment and growth and a positive outcome at the end uh, is kind of the basic framework for how stories work. So one of the, again, back to maybe the military special operations community, uh, there's no question when somebody decides they want to be a special operator uh, about the level and scope of challenges that lie ahead of that person. Um, and in the United States, we've developed a story very specifically about how uh, special operators are elite warriors. Um, and if an individual wants to challenge themselves to be one of the elite warriors, um, they are going to uh, work tirelessly on behalf of attaining that identity and then moving that group's ideas forward. Uh, typically, if you offer a uh, challenge for somebody with the, the enticement of that internal fulfillment, um, that's typically how stories really work well to motivate people um, into, into action. Well, so it sounds to me that there's not only this value of story for groups and group belongings, like if I want to impact a team, if I want to impact my organization, stories seem like a powerful way to do that. But now what you're telling me is it's also a powerful way to impact ourselves or impact an individual 
when they're trying to transform themselves into something new? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, there is a tremendous value in uh, how stories influence our, our ability to perceive the world around us and perceive our individual place within it. Um, and the idea that uh, challenges bring uh, growth and maturity and wisdom, um, that is the underlying idea in that hero's journey tale that uh, you see in so many movies and books. The idea always is that uh, the idea is always that um, if you motivate yourself to uh, really push yourself and to um, overcome the challenges that are ahead of you, that there is growth in that. Um, that is kind of a universal story that I think helps individuals grow and mature into, uh, into wiser people. And it really sounds to me that these stories don't really have – money behind them, right? Like there, I see so much out there now that people think if they make more money or they get a better car and that's the story we're telling that that'll draw people to them or that will create behavior that they want. And it's really this belief that people are driven by money. But really what it sounds like you're telling me is that it's this emotional context that is the most important, the challenge, the wisdom, the growth, the being part of something bigger than yourself it seems like it's bigger than the money-driven benefits that we have kind of espoused in this country for a really long time and really throughout the world. It really seems like it's still coming back to people being driven more by emotion than they are by what they can gain in, in tangible value. Uh, that's, that seems consistent with everything that I've studied. Um, people are... Uh, much more motivated by uh, those things that seem real and fulfilling to them as individuals. I think that the that using money to entice people certainly uh, has its place in motivating individuals, but people connect more with that real story of them becoming who they feel that they're supposed to be. Um, and when people feel like that's who they're growing into, um, then they're moving in a positive direction typically. So then what is the downside? If say somebody is doing something and it just does not feel right to them, they aren't growing. They're not part of this story that they've created for themselves or they don't see themselves as being part of a group that is really adding value in the way they want to add value what does that do to people? I mean, what do they do when they feel like they're stuck? What, what can they do using this idea of story and growth and wisdom and journey? What can they do to get out of where they're at and transition to maybe this next level or to something or someone they actually want to be? What can they do? Well, that again is where this idea of these universal stories with uh, powerful archetypes um, becomes really important because all of these stories include, uh, or at least the, the better stories, include those periods of feeling disconnected, of feeling like the world around doesn't make sense or 
it doesn't mean what it once did. Um, and the, the typical hero in these stories is the one who uh, is able to move through those periods um, and face the ugliness and face the disconnect and the kind of social friction that just doesn't feel like they're in the right place. Um, and if you can apply those stories, you know, like I'm thinking right off the bat of The Empire Strikes Back, um, you know, Star Wars is a great example of how uh, these uh, really classic archetypes are played out. And, um, you know, Luke Skywalker stuck in the swamp. He can't get his ship out of the, out of the swamp. Uh, things just aren't going well, and he doesn't feel like he's connecting in the way that he's supposed to. All of these stories factor in the fact that as individuals grow and move through life and move through the world, uh, this journey doesn't always go smoothly. It doesn't always go as planned. And those are some of those challenges that need to be faced and addressed uh, in order to kind of move up to the next level. Well, I think that's a great lesson for anybody listening, because I think we've all been there. Some of us are there now. A lot of us have been in this spot where we just don't feel like we're where we're supposed to be. And I think that that resonates with a lot of people and I love how you said that because it's, it's almost like you're saying, look, every hero, for it to be a hero's journey, has gone through this tough time. And maybe the people out there that are kind of struggling right now or feel stuck, that might be what they're going through right now is their tough time. And by using this knowledge about stories and archetypes and how people grow, that it can actually end up being better for them in the long run. So it seems like stories can impact us as individuals and our own success. But now, while we kind of wrap up this episode, I'd like you to give us a couple takeaways that maybe people listening that are, that are leaders, that are part of a, a big organization, or maybe they own their own business, and they have people working with them or working for them or they're part of a team. What kind of takeaways can leaders get from you where they can use some of this knowledge to have a positive impact on their groups, on their teams, on their organization, on their community? What can leaders do? Uh, leadership is a tricky subject, and I'm still learning it every day as I go. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway in general terms uh, is that for a group to move forward, all of the members uh, need to feel uh, like they are in alignment to some degree with each other. Um, so for that reason, our businesses, our agencies, our organizations have things like uh, dress codes and uh, uniform standards. So we all show up and we all uh, decide that we're going to appear similar. Uh, we have rituals as to how the day starts off, uh, what we do throughout the day, uh, all of these behaviors, when they are relatively standardized, help move the group in a positive direction. And the more that the individuals feel like they're a part of that, like they have some ownership in that, typically that's when you get the best results out of people. Um, one, of, one of my principles uh, in my structured group that I'm a, I'm a leader of um, is that we do not turn on the news um, whenever we're together as a group. 
the reason for that is that uh, politics and religion and matters of social controversy tend to drive people pretty quickly into their own corners, um, and it, it doesn't take much for the group to become divided at that point. So uh, for me personally, I do what I can to eliminate those uh, factors from the outside that start to pull individuals into other ideological groups uh, and keep everybody kind of moving in the same direction. And uh, I, I think that if leaders can keep their, their group members engaged and uh, moving in the same direction, that they're going to have the best results. Yeah, it sounds like that you need to be sure when you're working as a group, when you're trying to accomplish something together, that the story that you're living, that the story that you're telling, that the story you're a part of at that time has to be the story of the group. Because if, you know, like you said, if you guys aren't watching the news, you're not watching television, what you're doing is you're trying to exclude those other stories that will all of a sudden make members of your group become members of other groups at the time. So they all of a sudden now their group membership somewhere else becomes more salient and that's how they start behaving. And it sounds like what's important for leaders to recognize is to know your group story and make sure that when you're trying to work together on something, that the group story is the one that's important and that's the one everybody is living while you're trying to accomplish your goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, with that being said, Chris, I think it's been a great conversation about the power of story. Um, but I always ask every guest about this. Like what kind of, and I know because I know you, I know what you, what you do. I know where you are. I know all that stuff. But I also know the value add to people. Where can people reach you or if they had any questions for you? What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? I mean, what can you leave us with that if somebody wants to get more information about you, reach out to you, or kind of understand, hey, where is Chris Melbourne going in the future? What do you have to tell us? Where can we, where can we find out more about you, or, or how do we get a hold of you, or really what are you going to try to do in the future that people should be watching out for? Okay. Uh, well, thank you. I, I, first of all, I greatly appreciate uh, you having me here. Um, and I, I would love to address this. Um, the probably the best way to get a hold of me is I'm on Twitter, uh, Chris Milburn NPS. Uh, so that's C H R I S M I L B U R N N P S. My my direction from here. Um, I've been used recently as a, a terrorism subject matter expert in a variety of ways. Um, I am looking to uh, continue the research that I started at Naval Postgraduate School into uh, how music and rituals um, affect groups' directions forward, uh, and very specifically with groups that have an apocalyptic vision of the end of the world. Um, so that's uh, both political, religious, social, all those things are intertwined together. Uh, I've studied a great deal about uh, cult behavior and behaviors uh, from members who uh, choose to uh, actually give up their own lives for a group. And uh, I'm working on tying that, uh, that cult-like behavior in with um, the idea of suicide terrorism and finding those correlations of how individuals 
develop this identity that is so powerful that they're willing to take their own lives in the name of the group, whether it's uh, for an internal uh, communication or to communicate something to the outside world. So that's kind of the direction that I'm headed. Um, I love interacting with people on this kind of thing. I would love to uh, follow up with any of your listeners who might be interested. And uh, I really appreciate you having me here today. No, that's awesome. I'll put a link to your to your Twitter on on the show notes so that people can reach out to you. It sounds fascinating the direction you're going. I think a lot of people would be interested in that. So I would say, hey, I'm following Chris on Twitter. Kind of check it out. See what he's doing. Watch this journey that he's on because there's some there's some pretty cool stuff he's doing that applies to counterterrorism and special operations and things like that. But there's a lot of lessons for the rest of us that we can glean from, from that because what is impacting the groups really is so powerful. Thanks again to Chris for being on the Crucial Talks podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you have a chance, I'd love for you to visit the Crucial Talks website at www.crucialtalks.com and connect with me via email, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. If you need anything from me, please reach out. I'm always here to answer any questions. Also, if you could do me a quick favor, share the podcast, leave a review, and rate it. I would greatly appreciate it because this will help other people find these awesome interviews just like the one we have with Chris. So have a great week. And remember, if we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people. Please review, share, and subscribe to the Crucial Talks podcast. Visit CrucialTalks.com.